All right, let's take the Bible together, if you would, and go to Psalm 133 once again. Psalm 133. We're going to conclude this uh, just two-week study here in this psalm, uh, Psalm 133. And we are dealing with the subject of unity. And last week, uh, we gave as our subject, the subject or the title of this hymn, as dwell together in unity. And in verses 1 and 2, we dealt with the brethren in unity and how the Bible describes how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity and what a picture that that was. The writer, which we believe to be David, described unity uh, as in verse 2, like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garment. And we looked at the beauty of that ointment and how that ointment was um, was assembled or put together uh, by direct instruction from God. And that ointment and that, uh, that oil was used to anoint the priest. And it is a great picture and a, and a beautiful picture of how the, the ointment ran down. And it, it, it demonstrated the brotherly love that ought to be exercised towards one another. And this morning, as we continue to think about uh, not only this unity, but also this thought of brotherly love and how brotherly love is compared to this precious uh, ointment and how it is a, a joyful thing uh, to have uh, unity uh, in the body. But I, what I want to do is I want to read verse 3. And we're going to look this morning at the blessing of unity. So this is the third heading of the three headings that I've been giving you. Verse 3 says, As the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. So in a very similar fashion, as the anointing oil uh, was to Aaron and his sons, and how it was that which declared to them that they were in fact um, authorized to that particular priestly office. Now David gives this description of the dew. And I mentioned this a bit last Sunday, uh, the, the beauty of the dew and the beauty that uh, was, was upon the land and how this dew was life-giving. Uh, this was not something to be taken lightly. It was uh, the description that David is giving here. Uh, notice he says, the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. Now if you do a study uh, of the dew of Hermon. This is really uh, quite remarkable what David is saying here. Uh, because David is talking about an extremely high hill. This hill uh, was well beyond uh, what we would know to be beyond Jordan. And it was a hundred miles from Jerusalem. And so he describes this dew coming from this very high mountaintop traveling a hundred miles until it got to Jerusalem. This was dew that descended on the mountains of Zion. Now Zion were the mountains that surrounded Jerusalem. And you'll notice that he describes it, that it is something that descended upon. When we think about descension, when we think about descending down, it, there is this beautiful reference uh, to how it, is, it was God himself, through Christ our Lord, who condescended, who came down to us. We did not go up to him. He came down to us. 
And there is this beautiful picture of this, this ample supply of dew. And the length of uh, mileage that this covered to get and to, to well water or to abundantly give moisture to the areas that needed it. These particular hills are described, or these mountains of Zion rather, it is described that when the dew of Mount Hermon would come down, the plenteousness of this was so great that it, David is using that the dew and how plenteous it is, is how the unity of God's people ought to be. It, it, it really is an amazing psalm. Because if we get too caught up into the, 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 the idea of the dew and we get caught up with what dew means and what it is, it, that's a beautiful picture too. But when it's in the context of unity, he says, this is the way Christian brothers and sisters ought to be. And, and it ought to be something that is not just barely enough, but something that is plentiful. To where it's not like, well, we've just got enough to be uni unified, or we've just got enough to not be dry, but we actually have an abundance of it. Now, we introduced that thought of brotherly love last week, and we hear the term brotherly love often. But think about what brotherly love ought to do. Our love for the brethren ought to be more than just a little bit over dry. It ought to be more than just barely loving. But rather, there should be an abundance of brotherly love towards one another, towards the brethren. This dew, what was the purpose of it? Was this dew just something beautiful to look at? Was it just something to, to, to behold with our eyes and say, well, that's great? Or did the dew actually perform something? Well, the dew actually had an importance. And I think I mentioned this last week, that even, even in the, the world in which we live, the dew itself provides much needed refreshment to the ground and to the flowers and to the trees. We get up every day, and, and in the spring, we're going to start seeing this more and more. You're going to start getting up, and you're going to start seeing more dew around you. And we could think, well, that's just what happens in the morning. But you realize that has a nourishing purpose to it. It's not just something that happens in the weather world. It's actually sent directly by God. God ordains the sun, God ordains the clouds, God ordains the snow, God ordains the summer, the fall, the spring. He ordains it all, and all of it serves a purpose. But when taken in the context of unity here, this dew is described as that which was cooling, especially in that region of the world. The arid conditions around which Jerusalem was and is, that dew was necessary. This was not something that, oh, we take it or leave it. They depended upon that dew that was coming down to give moisture to the mountains of Zion that would then drain down into Jerusalem and would provide a cooling refreshment to that region. Now imagine that in the concept and the context of unity. You think about this this morning. Our presence together ought to be refreshing to one another. It shouldn't be like a dry, arid place. It shouldn't be something that we just have to endure this for a little while. This should be something that is so refreshing to us 
because we know where that do, quote unquote, comes from. You realize you cannot create a unified environment in the church no matter what you do. You can't make people have a unified heart. Brotherly love is granted by God. Brotherly love is granted and given by the Spirit of God. We could all set out today to say, I'm going to love my brothers and sisters in Christ more than I ever have. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You can determine what you're going to do. But do you know, you and I will never love one another as brethren in Christ unless God sends that brotherly love to us. Just when you think you know how to love the brethren, God shows you and gives you an example and questions you and say, do you really know what it is to love the brethren? Or are you just loving the brethren just a little bit over dry? Or are you actually loving the brethren as I have commanded you to love the brethren and to have brotherly love towards all of our brothers and sisters in Christ? This cooling nature, this refreshing nature of this do, teaches us this first point I want us to look at in verse 3. And the Bible actually tells us this. That the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for the Lord commanded the blessing. So we can say this, brotherly love comes from heaven. Brotherly love comes from heaven. The Lord is the one that commands the blessing of unity. A church, for example, can say it is in unity and not really be in unity. A church can be in unity as long as there is total agreement on every jot and tittle of life. Notice I'm not talking about the Bible, I'm talking about life. That somehow we believe that all of our lives are going to be this exact replica of one another. That you've got to feel and act and do the things exactly like I do. Then we can be in unity. That's not the kind of unity that the Bible's talking about. I can assure you, if you and I talk long enough... We are going to disagree on a lot of different aspects in life. But I would not break my fellowship with you because you had a different perspective on something that's different than mine. Unless we're talking about Bible doctrine, then we're going to have to have long, drawn-out discussions or something sinful. I think you, you folks know where I'm coming from that. But I'm not going to break fellowship with you and be in disunity because of something that God has not commanded me to be in unity about. But yet, what do we have unity in? We should have doctrinal unity. We should be unified as a church in doctrine. Now, there are brothers and sisters in Christ who even our doctrine tends to be and will lean differently. But we have to understand that this brotherly love is a commanded blessing that God orders. When a church is actually in unity... God has ordered the blessing of that unity. It's not because that church is superior or arrogant or above someone else. It's because there is this commanded blessing of unity that God himself has given. So just as the dew that flows down from Hermon, down to the mountains of Zion, then down to Jerusalem, brotherly love is a gift of God. And this brotherly love that's a gift of God is refreshing to the soul, first of all, but it's also refreshing to the body. 
because of the commanded blessing of God, we should abound in that gift. We should abound in the reality that God has given us this gift of brotherly love. Again, I mentioned to you, I've been in churches in disunity and I've been in churches sometimes just temporarily, sometimes just for a visit where there was no brotherly love that you could be distinguished. There was no unity that could be distinguished. Now, was it a church? Yes. Were they singing the hymns? Yes. Did a preacher get up and preach the Bible? Yes. But there was disunity. And that furthest thing from love was present. So this gift, this brotherly love, comes directly from heaven. Why does God give us the blessing of unity? This is the key. Is because unity brings glory to God. Folks, everything we do is supposed to be for the glory of God. Not the glory of self. Not the glory of our own. But for the glory of God. Our singing is for the glory of God. Our attitude is for the glory of God. What we say, what we do, how we act is for God's glory. And until we reach the point where we say we exist as a church and as believers in Christ, the only reason God truly saves us is for his glory. Again, the primary reason God saved your soul was not to keep you from hell. It took a lot of years for me to fully understand scripturally that was not the main reason why Christ died for you. The main reason is for because every saved soul is for the glory of God. The blessing of unity is that it brings glory to God. Just like that dew that came from Hermon, which fell from heaven. Where did the dew come from? It was ordered by God. God ordered that dew to fall in the place that it fell. And when he ordered it, it wasn't just enough to be beyond dry. It was abundant. So we see that brotherly love comes from heaven. Secondly, brotherly love is to be as the dew that descended. Brotherly love is to be as the dew which descended. In the mountain of Zion, and in Scripture, Zion and Jerusalem, of course, have great significance. Not only the significance of, of, of the, 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 the presence and, and the, the power of God, but it's also a picture. When we refer to Zion, we're referring to that which where the church is seated. And this week, I would encourage you, read on into Psalm 134 and meditate on Psalm 134 this week because 134 talks about the order of worship. And it talks about the order and unity of worship in the tabernacle and how the Levites were set out and they had their part, that their part was to, to lead the services, if you will. And then it talks about the servants and it talks about the people. And it makes this great reference to, it says, Behold, bless ye the Lord. To bless the Lord in its legitimate, intended meaning and context means to think and speak well of Jehovah. Bless the Lord. Speak well of him. Why do we speak well of God? We speak well of God because He has been so good to us. 
Folks, I don't think we fully comprehend how good God is to you and I. I think we do talk about it. I think we have a, we have a, a, a picture of it. But do you realize the blessing it is that God orders our life and that we don't live a life that's given over to chance and we don't give, we're not given to this fear and this wonderment about what's going to happen. We know that Jehovah God, all-powerful God, omnipotent and omnipresent, unchangeable, that God is always the same in everything he's doing. He's doing it for his glory. The Lord commanded a blessing upon whom? He commanded the blessing on his saints who were dwelling and worshiping together in the unity of the Spirit and in the bond of peace. We're going to look at this in a moment. The Apostle Paul actually uses that terminology about unity in the book of Ephesians when he says that we are to dwell and worship together in the unity of the Spirit. But don't, don't leave out the next part. And the bond of peace. I've also witnessed worship services where there was no unity where they call it worship, but it was not worship according to Scripture. Do you know that we as a Reformed Baptists actually have what's called a regulative principle of worship? And what that means is, is that there is what the Bible says we're to do and what we're not to do, and that our worship is actually regulated by God's Word, so that you and I are not free to choose how we want to worship. So if we decided one day that we think worship needs to be elevated, we think we need to tap into something different, you realize we can't go against what God has put as a pattern of worship and say, and call it worship, and then say God is okay with that. The worship that the Bible commands is simple. It's simple worship. It's simplified because it is never intended for the worship to truly be about us, but the worship is to be about God. It's not about what pleases our flesh. Do you know, besides arguing over the new sanctuary plans, what the next greatest cause for church splits are? How we're going to worship. What instruments are we going to use? What things are we going to do? And there's been this generational gap that has happened, and this has been happening since the 80s, for those who've been around long enough to know this. It's an intentional gap that has happened to try to divide the church and put church... Churches are dividing and splitting over worship preferences. And what they're calling worship's not even worship anyway. Because we think worship's just music. That's why it's, it's cringeworthy when someone tells me and says, it's time for the worship now, and then the music starts. Because it's like it's a defined... The worship of God begins and ends and continues long before the services begin, long after the services are over. The worship is even when the word is preached and taught. Believe it or not, if our minds are right today, you are worshiping God right this minute. You're not waiting for the next hymn to come on. That's unity. God commands the blessing on that which is unified. In the bond of peace, 
the blessing, even the blessings of blessing. Notice that the, the psalmist says, Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. He's talking about the, the blessing of eternal life. This do, again, if we continue to think on this thought for a moment, the do throughout the scripture is described and illustrated as a symbol of the power of God and an image of a renewed life. The do is actually life-giving. You realize, and you'll watch this happen in the summertime. That dew that's there every single morning, we get a little bit further into the summer and the summer starts to get a little bit drier, gets a little bit hotter, and suddenly the dew in the morning disappears and then we have a streak where there's not much rain. What starts to happen to everything? It starts drying. It starts turning brown. It's not getting that moisture that we thought, this is not a big deal. It's a big deal when it stops. And yet... In Scripture, the dew is not meant to just be this weather, quote-unquote, phenomenon. It's actually a picture of life-giving. I'm going to look at a couple passages this morning. Look at Hosea chapter 14, a beautiful, beautiful uh, book of the Bible. And I want you to notice that, again, in the context of this, there has been a call to repentance. With that call of repentance, there has been a description of what happens as a result of repentance and what happens as a result of things being done according to God's way. I'm just going to pick up in verse number four. It says, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely for mine anger is turned away from him. Now he's talking about a a people who repent. I will be as the dew unto Israel. You know what happens when you repent? You know what happens when you get things right? It's like that dew that falls. There is a refreshment. There is a bringing back to life. There is a restoration. There is this beautiful picture. And notice who's commanding this to happen. It says, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. I will be as the dew unto Israel. He shall grow as the lily and cast forth the roots as Lebanon. His branches shall spread and his beauty shall be as the olive tree and his smell as Lebanon. They that dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. And then notice the last verse. Who is wise? And he shall understand these things. Prudent, and he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them, but the transgressors shall fall therein. It's an image of renewed life. Go to the prophet Isaiah. Let's look at another example here. Isaiah 26 and his references to this do. Isaiah chapter 26. And look at verse number, uh, let's look at verse number 19. Thy dead man man shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out 
the dead. This beautiful picture. Dead man, dead man, living. You realize, and I think everyone here today understands, that before the grace of God came upon us and opened our eyes and unstopped our ears, we were dead men. A dead man, a dead woman, cannot give themselves life. I cannot command the dew in the morning. I can't command God to do anything. To think I could command God to give life to these dead bones is the epitome of arrogance. To think that one day I could command God to save my soul. How prideful is that? Notice every one of these life-giving illustrations, whether it's Hosea or Isaiah, they are talking about it is God who gives them this. It is God who commands the blessing. It is God who commands the life. It is God who gives the restoration. And this picture Isaiah gives. And then look at Psalm 110, a familiar psalm to many of us. Psalm 110. And look at the references being made here to, again to this life-giving power. Psalm 110. Let's just read the first three verses. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. That similar expression. The life-giving power of this dew. I would really strongly encourage you that when you read through Psalms and you read through any portion of Scripture, portion of scripture don't just take for granted or overlook the details of a passage of, of Scripture. Most of us probably at one point or another, maybe not now, would have read Psalm 133 and we would have probably ignored the dew and we would have ignored the oil and we would have said, well, yeah, that was just something for the Old Testament time, but I don't really relate to that now. You know how many times I hear that people, that they say this, I'm looking, for a, I'm looking for a church that preaches things that are relevant to today. <laughs> Is the dew not relevant for today? Is the oil not relevant for today? Why do we think there has to be something different? Why do we think that in order to gain unity in a body, we have to appeal to what the flesh wants instead of saying, look at the beauty and the blessing that's already there when God gives you the unity because it's a unity that's not broken. I hear people say all the time that churches are supposed to go through seasons of disunity. Where did you get that from? Who taught you that? Who taught you that it's normal for churches to go through seasons where their fellowship is broken and their unity is hindered? We as churches have bought that. 
So we think, oh, if we're going through a period of disunity, that's normal. God has said that he can command the blessing of unity where you can have a church that is never in disunity. You say, well, it can't be because there's humans dwelling there. Folks, do we, do we doubt the power of God to keep a church unified? If we did things according to what the scripture tells us to do, and we acted and did what God says to do, there's a blessing that's commanded. And I'm not talking about prosperity foolishness. I'm talking about that God says, I've given you my word, and if you will do it my way, I will command the blessing upon that congregation, and I will command the blessing upon my people. Here's the problem. We don't want to do it God's way. Because we have been bombarded from every direction about what church and what unity needs to be, and sadly, it's coming from non-biblical sources. Unity is actually something that God commands. In John 10, 10, think about what, especially with regard to this, even life forevermore. What did Jesus say? He said, our Lord says, I am come that ye may have life and that ye might have it more abundantly. We are supposed to have abundant, thriving, unified churches. It's not supposed to be the picture of disunity. Folks, the church as a whole, if you were to take the church in America as a whole, now that goes across all denominational lines. I realize what I'm saying this morning. There is not a more disjointed, disunified organization than the church. Now we can say, no, the most disunified place is Washington, D.C. Yeah, that's the cop-out answer. Because here's the reality. I expect that to be in disunity. I'm not commanded to pray for unity. I'm commanded to pray that God's word, and I'm commanded to pray for the leadership of my country and my township and my county, no matter who's in office. I'm supposed to be doing that. We're, trying to, we're doing everything we can to unify things, but we don't fight that hard to try to say, how important is the unity of the church? You know, some of the things that we actually see happening in our country, we would not be dealing with if our churches would actually do it God's way. You say, that's a pipe dream. No, that's truth. That's truth. We have fundamentally changed our churches from top to bottom. And we've put something in its place that we say, this is what church should look like. And then we go to the scripture and we say, wait a minute, hold it. Where do, where do I see that? And I don't. God commands his people to be in unity. Well, I have my... I have my rights, I have my perspective. You can say that. But it's God's perspective and God's word and commands is really all that matters. Thank God that when we look at his word, we see God says, here's how this is to be done. Here's what this should look like. 
When the Lord Jesus himself in John 10.10 said, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly, he was not just talking about eternal life, although that is the greatest blessing we have, but he was also talking about abounding in loving one another with a pure heart. Folks, let me, I hope this isn't in the flesh, but I wish we would get as serious about our churches as we are about our political leanings. Please stop it. That's not the answer. It never has been. The church is supposed to be the pillar and the ground of the truth. We wonder where is truth contained? Truth is in God's word. Period. That's where we know truth. And that's where we ought to be diligently and fervently trying to love one another. Again, just like everything else in Scripture, just because God commands the blessing doesn't mean we sit idly on our hands and we say, okay, God, you said you're going to command the blessing. Pour it out. We're to diligently be living these principles. The blessing of the Lord is bestowed upon them and it's described as life forevermore. So third heading, quickly, is that the blessing the Lord bestowed is eternal. Now, again, we have to think in eternal terms when we often read Scripture. And sometimes we become so temporal in our thinking that we think that all the blessings of everything we're told about, that we're going to see and experience and know them now. But there is coming a day when we actually will experience it in a perfect setting. You realize that when we get to glory, there will not be any such thing as division. We don't even know what that means. We have division in our homes. We have division in our schools. We have division, division, division everywhere we look. Do you know what it's going to be to actually have the blessing of eternal unity? It's the same concept as trying to deal and comprehend the fact to be without sin. We don't even comprehend what that'll be to not even be able to be capable of thinking a sinful thought. But yet, if you look with me at Ephesians chapter 4, and if you'll notice what Paul was saying, I think I referenced this last week, but I think it's always important to go, to go look at it again. Paul is writing again in the context of the unity of the Spirit and in the bond of peace. This is the very thing I just mentioned I said we would cover. Verse 1, he says, and he's talking about those who are part of God's new creation, the new creatures in Christ. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Now notice how he says that those who are called, those who are God's, are to walk with lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love. Walk lowly, walk meekly, Walk with long-suffering, walk with forbearance towards one another in love. And then there's this real strong, powerful word, endeavoring. Now, you might have a different translation this morning, but I think the word endeavoring is the right word, the word that just really says 
This is an endeavor is something that is intentional. An endeavor is something that is diligent. Endeavoring to keep. If someone threatened to take our most prized possession, we would do whatever we could to keep them from getting it. We put alarms on our cars, we put alarms on our doors, we put, we put money in the bank so nobody can get it. Say we're going to come get your money and going to come get this and that and we'll put everything we can to keep it. He says, I want you to endeavor to keep what? The unity of the Spirit. And you'll notice the word Spirit is capitalized. He's talking about the unity that the Holy Spirit provides. Folks, you're not going to have unity wherever the Spirit is not present. The only reason you and I will ever have the unity of the Spirit is because of the presence of the power of the Spirit of God dwelling within us. That's what makes it possible. So when we say, we can't be in perfect unity, are, are we calling the Scripture a liar? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. We are to be humble in every relationship. We are to be forbearing and long-suffering, to be patient. We are to sometimes even endure painful things for the sake of unity. The church is commanded to be unified because of what Paul says. One Lord, one body, one spirit, one faith, one baptism. Unity is not optional. Unity is commanded. And finally, when we think about what this unity actually is, and we think about the pictures of of how we wrap these thoughts together, we understand that to love one another, to have this brotherly love, is what affects our actual communion. It's what allows us not just to dwell together, but to commune together. To dwell and to commune are two different things. There are people who can dwell together in a home. And folks, I am by no means an expert. I never claim to be an expert. I have watched marriages that are dwelling together and there's nothing there. You can dwell. You can go through the motions. You can go through the routine. You can actually come and you can put on a great face like we all do when we come to church on Sunday and we say everything is perfect. My family, my, my, my marriage, my kids, my work, I'm, look, I'm great. And we come and we dwell together and we say, praise God, we're here. But dwelling together and being in unity, the end result is actually communion. To commune with actually has to have real fellowship and it means to actually be like-minded towards one another. Now, we've not covered this yet, but I want to share with you, and some of you might have your confession this morning and you may not, but I want to share with you in chapter 27, there's an entire chapter of the confession that's entitled of the communion of the saints. And... I want you to listen to what the, what the confession writers, and this is based all upon Scripture, of course. 
But look what it says. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit and faith, although they are not made thereby one person with him, have fellowship in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And being united to one another in love, they have communion. Look at, listen to this. They have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, in an orderly way, as do conduce to their mutual good, both the, in the inward and the outward man. Paragraph 2, saints by profession are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God, and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual... You see, there's a, there's an, there is an emphasis on mutual. Mutual edification as also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities, which communion, according to the rule of the gospel, though especially to be exercised by them in the relation wherein they stand, whether in families or churches, yet as God offers opportunity, is to be extended to all the household of faith, even all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Nevertheless, their communion one with another as saints doth not take away or infringe the title of propriety which each man hath in his goods and possessions. The confession writers got it right. Mutual edification. Number one reason that a lot of people say, I don't have unity with that, with that church, is this. The church doesn't meet my needs. Now again, sometimes it's because the person is selfishly looking for their needs only. They're saying, I'm here, you minister to me. Preacher, you minister to me. Your messages are not relevant to me. Or it means that the church is failing to be that. The church is failing to meet the needs. But understand something, that if everybody actually had that attitude of mutual edification, you stop looking inwardly and you stop looking at what you're not getting and you start saying, am I really living in a desire for unity like this where I'm more concerned about the person sitting next to me, in front of me, behind me, and their edification? Folks, we don't have to question God. He's got this right. He's got it right. But you know what often comes up? If we're going to live like this, what do I have to give up? That's how self-centered we can be. This is going to cost me something. Listen, we fight, for, we fight for our families. We fight to keep our families together. We fight that our families are what they're supposed to be. Folks, the church, the church is supposed to be that very same way. This is not just something you come to every week. And if our church, if we have that attitude that we're, this is just, we just come to services, we're never going to be what God intended for us to be. The blessing of unity is when God commands that blessing, once again, what's the promise? That those blessings will be forevermore. God is commanding an eternal blessing upon his people who will actually have and will endeavor 
to live that way. So I hope that'll help us. I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll, we'll tab, take any questions or any comments you may have this morning. And if there isn't any, we'll go ahead and dismiss into our fellowship. But let's go ahead and pray. Father, we do thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, I, I personally thank you this morning just for the time spent with you this week thinking about the beauty of the brethren in unity and the blessing that the Bible says is commanded by you. And Father, I can't, nor do I desire, to try to manipulate, to try to change, to try to convince, but to simply just give your word, knowing that this, this way, these attitudes, these have to come from the Spirit of God. And Father, I pray that you would, through the Spirit, save those that need to be saved, that they would be converted, they would be regenerated, they would be brought to repentance. And to believe in Jesus Christ alone as the only remedy for their salvation. And the Father, that our church here, Lord, that no matter who is here, who comes and who goes, that we would have this spirit of unity and the bond of peace. And that we would never take this biblical mandate and commandment lightly. That we would all endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit. That Psalm 133 would find a resting place in our hearts and in our minds as our, our, our desire to dwell together in unity and in communion. And that this church, this body of believers, would worship in spirit and in truth and would be the picture of what you've called us to be. Father, that we would not be taken over by our own desires and our own wants and our own needs, but we would desire the mutual edification of one another. Father, I pray that you would grow this church, not numerically first and foremost, but that you would grow us and strengthen us, that our minds would be in one accord, our hearts would be in unity. We would have one mind and one spirit about us, and we would realize that everything we do is for the glory of God. Father, thank you for each and every one who you've placed here. Lord, none of us are here by chance. And we're thankful that you order our steps, that you direct our paths, that you show us the way. We do love you this morning and we thank you. Thank you for saving us. And thank you for giving us the privilege of proclaiming your word until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. We ask all these things in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen.